0: Well, Mark, chapter 1. We've got a few short paragraphs we're going to work through here, so uh, this will be a message in just in these two verses. Mark, Mark 1, verses 12 and 13. Mark says, "...the Spirit... Immediately it drove him, Jesus, that is, out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Lord, we're thankful for your word, and Lord that we, we, we pray what we just sang, speak. Lord, let us see. Our Savior here in these written pages and the reality of what He endured for our sakes would be made fresh and real to us. And pray you'd help your people. Pray you'd save. Pray, Lord, please, may your Son be lifted up and glorified. And Lord, pray your Spirit would meet with us. We ask in His name. Amen. So, our last message here in Mark, we looked at Jesus in the water now we're going to look at Jesus in this wilderness and uh, just like we saw last time the the, the scene in the waters is just full of all kinds of symbolism and typology and um, so so this little excursion Jesus has into the wilderness the very same thing very same thing it's a, it's a context where it, this setting connects all kinds of old testament shadows and and themes and events and Yes, we also find this this event recorded in Mark's Gospel, chapter four. And I'm not Mark. Matthew's Gospel, chapter four, and Luke's Gospel, chapter four, and Matthew handles it, I believe, in eleven verses. Luke details this event in thirteen verses. Mark, well <laughs> this is vintage mark. Two verses, boom. The whole event. And uh I am going to take liberty at times to to pull and read from the other gospels when we come when we you know when we encounter parallel events but but not always I do want to approach Mark primarily focusing on what Mark focuses on um not exclusively but for the most part and today today will be an example of that um I I mentioned in in the last message that the scene in the water it's when Jesus was getting baptism, it was a coronation service of sorts. Uh, it's an introduction of the of the Father into the world, his son. This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. This is the long-awaited prophet, priest, and king. But you know, instead of a celebration, instead of this coronation service you would expect with such, a, such an introduction as this, what we find is verse 12: the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness instead of jesus being received uh, like a king a king's coronation this, this pageantry that you'd expect in the announcement of such a person instead what we get is jesus received by by desert sands and tumbleweeds and wild beasts wild animals mark says And this scene really really does set the tone for Jesus' ministry here on earth. His mission. He was not here on any tourist visa. Jesus came to do business and He sets to do that business right here when He comes out of these waters. Mark, Mark here laying down another one of His immediately statements. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. Now that word drove means to cast out or to eject. With force. It's the very same word used when the Bible talks about Jesus casting out demons. It's the very same word John uses when he says Jesus made a whip of cords and He drove the people out of the temple. And there's, there's a lot of force behind this, this word. This is not some light suggestion that the Spirit's saying, Jesus, why don't you, just, why don't you go over there in the wilderness? No, the Spirit's driving Him. There's an implicit command here. Taking the form of a servant, Jesus would now demonstrate his submission to the Father by obeying the Spirits leading here. And as a spirit, as as a servant, rather, Jesus, like in the previous message, in the previous verses, as he, he identifies with us symbolically in, in the baptismal waters, here he identifies with us experientially in temptation. But, brethren, that's, that's really only secondary to what's going on here. I mean, there's a tendency to make these, te- these passages, you know, all three accounts, uh, about you know, Jesus being tempted like in all points as we are. That's true. I want to minimize that. But there's much more going on uh, than that. I mean, if all we do is seek to pull from this account tips on how to battle the devil, then we, we lose the significance of what takes place here between Jesus and Satan and how it relates to our redemption. In fact, this is more about Jesus being tested than it is about Jesus being tempted. Now, both are true. Because the temptations are the test. That's exactly what's going on here. And I and just like just like the, the last message, I wanted us to see the reason behind the why behind the baptism. I want us to see the, the why behind this temptation here, this wilderness scene. And so for you you heading lovers, I, I've got three headings. Uh, number one, Jesus was tempted. Number two, in doing so, He was fulfilling redemptive history. And thirdly, how does that relate to us today? So number one, Jesus was tempted. Being filled with the Spirit, Jesus was taken by the Spirit from John's baptism into this wilderness encounter with the devil. Mark says, being tempted by Satan... Now, now Matthew puts it in Matthew 4:1, puts it quite more matter-of-factly. He, I mean, he says, "Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil." I, I titled this heading "Jesus Was Tempted," because questions can be raised here. How could Jesus be tempted if he's God? How could he be tempted like us if he's without sin? How could God lead him into temptation? And these conflicts arise out of misunderstandings of Scripture. Largely a misunderstanding of what James writes in his letter. So if you turn to James 1, let's, let's look at this so we can have a, a bit of a clearer understanding of this, this idea of temptation as it relates to God. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Put that in your back pocket. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So here's the statement, verse 13. God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. That produces this thought, well, if God tempts no one, then why is the Spirit of God taking Jesus into this arena of temptation? And if Jesus is truly God, then, then how, how, is it, how, how is it that He can actually be tempted? And really, actually answering those two questions could be two separate messages. Um, but I just want to pro- provide some explanation because those, answer, those questions do arise. Brethren, it's important that we pay very close attention to what Scripture actually says. It specifically says God Himself tempts no one. That's That's what James is declaring. That is true. And there's nothing about the account of the Spirit driving Jesus into an arena of temptation that conflicts with that statement. The Spirit is not the one doing the tempting the devil is the one doing the tempting. It's very similar to what happened with Job, right? Satan appears before Job. Job's he's recognizing Job's protection, God's protection over Job. He says, "Yeah, I mean, look at the guy. Your hand of protection's all over. Let me at him." And God gives him permission, right? God gives him permission, but God doesn't bring the evil upon Job that comes upon him. The devil brings the evil upon Job. God did not produce that big difference. The devil tempts, but the but God tests. There's a difference there. There's a difference between tempting and testing. And yes, even that can get tricky in scripture because if you look at the Greek word, <laughs> it's the same Greek word. But the, the Holy Spirit expects us to use sanctified wisdom and understanding how it's being used and even when I say that, some translations it seems don't always quite get that right, but 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 we know collectively, we know this, right? What what does a test do? A test seeks to prove reality. Right? I mean, James touched on this a little bit last month when he's looking at 1 Corinthians 10. A test is looking for an end result. A temptation... What's a temptation doing? A temptation is seeking to solicit sin. It's it's seeking to get someone to fall. It's, It's seeking evil. An evil end it's looking to draw you into that which is opposed to God. That's what's happening here in Mark 1:13. The temptations come from the devil, but the test is coming from God himself. It's very important that we see, we understand that this this whole thing is initiated by God. It's not initiated by the devil. It is initiated by the Spirit. The Spirit saying, "Jesus, go there. You got an appointment." I was arranging this thing. Okay, so, so then how do we reconcile Jesus being God and Jesus being tempted with evil? And Scripture says right here, we just read it, God cannot be tempted with evil. Well, God cannot be tempted with evil simply is speaking to the fact that God is perfectly righteous and good. He, he doesn't have the capacity to be enticed by evil. He doesn't have the capacity to, to even fall for evil as it relates to Jesus, this is because He's fully God. He cannot sin because He is fully God. And God is we know that God is pure. He has a pure character. He has pure conduct. And this is known as the doctrine of impeccability. That, that the inability to sin. Not capable of sinning. Jesus, was, Jesus Christ was not capable of sinning. If He was then He wasn't God. It's that simple. And we've already seen this multiple times. This is in the opening of this book. Mark sets forth and he asserts in this Gospel the deity of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's, that's a primary theme of Mark's throughout his Gospel. Jesus is God. Now, some have suggested that if Jesus was impeccable, unable to sin that is, then how could He be truly tempted like we are? People struggle over that. I mean, if he doesn't possess the capacity to fall into sin when he's tempted to sin, then how can he be tempted like you and I are? And brethren, this isn't a cop-out. Some would, would likely assert it to be. But we, we, have to, we have to simply embrace what Scripture teaches us. And again, we have to be very careful in trying to make Jesus, the God-man, fit into our limited, finite categories of our puny little fallen minds. At the end of the day, we all just need to bow to Scripture. What does Scripture assert? Our confidence must, at the end of the day, our confidence must reside in thus saith the Lord. Because if your hope and your trust isn't anything outside of that, it is vain. It is. The truth is, Jesus really was tempted in this wilderness. And He really was tempted like you and I are. And we know that because that's what Scripture declares. And I, last, I think the last message I did refer to that passage in Hebrews, we're real close to it, so Hebrews 4, let's, let's check this out. Hebrews 4, verse 15. The Hebrew writer says in in Hebrews 4.15, for for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Hebrew writer, through divine inspiration, does not... It's not a shame to lay both of these truths side by side. Jesus is perfectly sinless. And yet, Jesus can sympathize with our weakness, our weak state, because He also has entered into this realm of temptation which we're all subjected to. In fact, He did so with every respect minus the sin. That's the testimony of Scripture. And brethren, And this is very similar to what what I explained last time about trying to grasp Jesus as God and yet He grew in wisdom, right? Jesus did not stop being God in the Incarnation. He didn't. But in taking on human flesh, He did purposely relinquish or he, he, He didn't exercise certain divine attributes. At the same time, By becoming human, He he purposely took upon Himself the limitations and experiences of human creatures. Listen, we don't want to discount Jesus' experience of temptation simply because He possessed the righteous integrity that we don't have to not succumb to those temptations. Robing Himself in flesh made Him subject to all that flesh is subject to minus the sin. Desires, just like we have desires. Feelings, sorrow, pain, weakness, hunger. Listen, Jesus wept because He was actually sad. Jesus was amazed. He was amazed because He marveled. He he was actually marveling at someone's faith. He hungered because his body was actually hungry. It wasn't wasn't some fake thing. Jesus would have had the same internal pull you do and I do when we attempt our pathetic one-day fast, right? Or your stomach says, tell me, feed me. Come on, it's time to eat. Haven't you gone long enough? Come on. Come on, just one little bite. I mean, that's a very natural human response when you've cut yourself off of food. After fasting for 40 days, Jesus would have been incredibly hungry and weak, just like you and I. In fact, Satan, knowing that, brought to Him the perfect temptation, food." Go ahead, Jesus. There's a stone. Turn it to bread. You can do it. You're able to do that. Brethren, that was a real temptation. And nothing less. A temptation to break the fast and eat and disobey what the Spirit of God was leading Him to fulfill. And praise God, brethren, He didn't yield. He didn't yield. He fulfilled His purpose. Which leads to, to, to my second heading here. Jesus came to fulfill redemptive history. He gets after it right here. There's, there's no inaugural celebration. There's no, there's no songs or fanfare or you know, strike up the band and have a parade. There's no balloons or confetti. We just find Jesus, boom! Right into the fray. And one of the great tasks of God coming and taking upon flesh is doing, brethren, is doing what we could not do. That's why he came to do what we couldn't do. To defeat the enemy of all enemies, G, uh, uh, Satan himself. Jesus defeated Satan. You and I can't. We were in bondage to him. If you're a Christian here today, you are bound in his slavery until Jesus came and busted those chains. The first Adam failed. The second Adam must succeed. The second Adam is in play right here. Pushed out into the arena. There are a number of Old Testament typologies that come to fruition here. I mean, Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the true Israel. And Jesus is the second Adam or last Adam. And uh, it would take up the rest of our time to dive into all three of those. I'm just going to talk about the last one. Jesus as the second or last Adam. Right here, Jesus is entering into the test that Adam failed. Same test. The temptation of the devil. This is the point, brethren, where mankind fell and abandoned their allegiance to the living God. Succumbing to the deceptive temptations of, of the serpent. It's where Adam fell and is where Jesus must succeed. And brethren, Satan's tactics, they haven't changed. He specializes in questioning God. He did it with the the first Adam with a question, right? Has God actually said, boom, down, game over. Same tactic with Jesus, right? Now, we don't get that from Mark. But but Matthew and Luke tell us as as He opens up dialogue, as the the enemy comes, as, as Satan comes and starts dialogue with Jesus, first words out of his mouth, if you're the Son of God, Turn this stone to bread. If. Are you really the Son of God? I mean, what a contrast that takes place here, right? I mean, the heavens burst open. You get the audible voice of the Father from heaven This is my beloved Son. Immediately following that, the gates of hell open, and Satan audibly saying, Are you? Daddy's not around now, Jesus. He's left you all alone in the wilderness with Me. I mean, isn't that divine child abuse right there? Has He abandoned you? Let's see what you're made of now, Jesus. Let's really see if you are the Son of God. This was a necessary test that Jesus had to pass. Adam brought all of mankind, all of us, into a state of disobedience through his sin. However, God demands perfection. This is the gospel. God demands perfection, meaning you and I, we have to have a perfect record of obedience, or we're going to face the just punishment of the living God. And let's turn there, Romans 5. There's only one, there is only one way of achieving a perfect record of obedience and its substitution by a perfect substitute. This is the heart of the Gospel. Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that would be Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the One who was to come. That type being Jesus. The One now being driven by the Spirit into the wilderness was Satan. Verse 17, "...for... For if because of one man's trespass Adam's, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the first Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. And we see that designation of Adam, Jesus as the, as the second or the last Adam in First Corinthians 15. If we if you turn there, 1 Corinthians 15, Scripture sets this forth. Speaking of this again, calling Jesus the last Adam. Verse 45 of chapter 15, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven." Hallelujah! But in order for that to happen, Jesus has to successfully do what the first Adam could not do. Withstand the temptations Of Satan. Prove, end up, actually, end up proving to be a faithful, obedient servant. Lastly, turn to Luke 3. I I want you to see that this is relevant, very relevant to what's going on in this wilderness temptation. We can easily make the gospel just all about us, but Jesus, while yes, he, he is doing what he's doing for us, he's actually fulfilling redemptive history here by fulfilling redemptive typology. We read it there, right? In in Romans, Adam who is a type of the One to come. What does that mean? What does type mean? It's not typically language we use, is it? It it simply means Adam prefigured Christ. He he foreshadowed Christ. He He was a representative pattern of the One who was to come. That One being Jesus. Mankind is represented by two heads. Naturally, we're all under the headship of Adam and under his guilt. The only other headship is Jesus Christ. And you only get under that headship through faith and His redemptive work. Now I had you turn to Luke 3 because I, I, I want you to notice Dr. Luke here, the great historian that he is, reverses the order of genealogy. Matthew lists his genealogy like most people do in chronological order, but, but not Luke. Luke reverses it, starting with Jesus and then ending with Adam. Notice the last phrase of Luke 3. The Son of Adam, the Son of God. That is not random selection by Luke or, or the Holy Spirit. Luke sandwiches Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation with Jesus' genealogy ending with Adam. All to introduce to us Jesus in the wilderness as the last Adam. The true Son of God. That's the significance of this scene. Here He is, the second Adam, now under trial. Will He hold up? Will He succeed where the first Adam horrifically failed? Stay tuned because I hear all hell on the horizon about to unleash all their arsenal against him. And you better believe the the devil had thousands of years to study humanity. He got him to trip right at the beginning. You think he's not prepared for this moment? He thinks he is. This encounter, brethren, was tent, intense. This is and this is why this is happening because. Jesus had to cover our pathetic attempt to be obedient to our Creator. By successfully enduring the temptations of Satan and remaining obedient to the Father, Jesus achieves and secures a righteousness, brethren, that you and I so desperately need before a holy God. The Hebrew writer says it in Hebrews 5 9, being of Jesus, speaking of Jesus, being made perfect. He became perfect. The source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And yes, Jesus is perfect. He's perfectly righteous. But you see, he needed to prove it. He needed to, and he needed to acquire that status for us as a substitute. Which required him not to fail in one point at all. Let me ask, you, you ever had a day where you haven't failed in, in thought? or deed in one point at all? Jesus did. We could rightly say that this is Jesus' probation period. Starting right here with this head-on clash with the devil. It it wasn't enough for Jesus to to float down here and take on human flesh and say, okay, where's the cross? I'll lay down. I'll give my life. No, He had to be tested and proven just like the first Adam. Will Jesus prove to be faithful and obedient unto death? And this is a running question throughout the Gospels. And brethren, the fact He was all the way to death should just win our hearts afresh. Lord, thank You for enduring what You endured in this scene here. You see, you and I, we can't enter into heaven simply on on the basis of of absence or being absolved from our sin. It's not just a, a clean slate that gets you into glory. You have to have a perfect righteousness. We need a perfect righteousness. And that can only come from a perfect substitute. And that can only be as He's proven and tried to be just that. And Jesus, that's what He earned for us. He had to defeat Satan. So that we could be rescued out of the domain of darkness and be actually brought and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Because by nature, we were all bound right there serving the devil. And now the time has arrived where Jesus starts to apply his heel to the head of that venomous viper. I mean, 1 John 3 tells us, right? That Jesus came, what was the purpose of Him coming? John says, He came to destroy the works of the devil. It starts right here. The devil's where it all begins. He fails there, he fi- the whole mission's gone. It's over. He had to crush, he had to, he came, as one of his chief aims. He came to fulfill Genesis 3:15. 3, crushing the head of the serpent. In John 16, on the eve of his death. He tells His disciples, you know they're all full, full of sorrow because He's telling them He's leaving. And He says to them, it's, your, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the Helper's not going to come. And when the Helper comes, He's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Because of sin, because they don't believe on Me. Uh, because of righteousness, because I go to the Father. Because of judgment. Because the ruler of this world is... Judged. Jesus says that in past tense, 20, actually 24 hours about from, from it actually happening. Because when Jesus expired on that cross, <laughs> defeated foe. He defeated. This is why we sing, Oh, victory in Jesus. Jesus defeated the enemy, Satan. Paul tells the Colossians that Jesus put that snake and all His cohorts to an open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. That's looking back. But the mission started here. You can turn back to Mark. The mission started here. This was Jesus' first big test. Like I said, if He he fails here, he, He loses His battle with Satan, mission is failed. And you and I are hopeless. But we're not hopeless. Not if we have this Christ because He's a risen Christ, a conquering Christ. So then, the last heading. How does this relate to us today? Well, there are several takeaways here for us uh, besides securing our salvation, but let me just pull a couple. Number one, we should take a closer look here at Adam's failure and Jesus' success. Think about, it. brethren. Think about. This. I mean, God wants us to use our, our sanctified imagination. Think about the setting of both of these situations. Adam is absolutely he's surrounded by within a beautiful, well-supplied garden, lined with fruit trees galore that he could eat. He had permission to eat. There was no cursed ground or people to have to contend with. He he was joined by his beautiful wife at his side enjoying intimate fellowship with the living God. I mean, it was an unstained, untainted paradise. You find what you think to be a paradise on Google and, oh, I want to go there, let's go on vacation. It ain't nothing compared to what was in that garden. Nothing. Adam had it all. Everything. Every advantage. No sin. He had great health. Great strength. He had great communion with God. He he had everything. It was great. And he failed. Complete failure. By caving to one temptation. Zoom forward 3,000 years. Jesus facing the very same foe here. Doing so in a desolate wilderness, made so by our sin. There's no food here. No companion. There's no Eve here. No companions, no friends, no family, no lush paradise. Just dirt, rocks, dust, and lizards. Just a barren wilderness filled with carnivorous wild animals ready to make you dinner. Why does Mark throw them in there? I think that's the very reason. You want to be thrown out with a bunch of hyenas and and lions and on your own? I don't. Unless you're one of these freakish lion whisperer guys. (laughs) Nobody wants that. It was a daunting wilderness. And here Jesus said, that's just just the scenery. That's just the, the setting. He's in the midst of that, weakened in His flesh by starvation. Every every condition was poor. His stomach was screaming for food. The the heat of dry, dusty wilderness is upon Him. Nothing about it was pleasing to the flesh. Yet Jesus remained obedient and well-pleasing. A well-pleasing servant in the sight of His God. Brethren, The breath of hell was upon Him for 40 days relentlessly. For you! For you! You think you've had temptations? Nothing compared to what He faced. Nothing. 40 days. And He honored God through it all just amazing. It really is amazing. This is a phenomenal feat. We, we, we tend to reduce Jesus' suffering to, to from Gethsemane to Calvary. Yes, Jesus' greatest suffering, of course, yes, was what took place on the cross. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around what took place there. We try to. We should. We should endeavor to. It, it, But there he was, taking man's sin upon himself. The wrath of God for three three days in absolute darkness and God's fury upon him. I mean, I'm not attempting to minimize that in the least. But we're not talking hours here. We're talking days. Forty days. Yes, there's been been men that have gone 40 days fasting. That's true. They've achieved that. But, But the fasting isn't the half of it. Jesus had all of hell's collective energy aimed at His person for 40 days. In fact, it was so bad, Mark tells us Jesus needed intermittent angels to survive this thing. The the aid of angels. That's how severe the trial was. How does it relate to us? We We can't blame our circumstances, our environment, on our sin. Our failures. Don't blame your failures on your circumstances. Remember, Adam had it all. It just won't fly. We had everything as human beings. Every advantage we could ever want and we foolishly threw it all away, brethren. And yes, we. Because if you don't include yourself with Adam, you don't know your heart before God. Because you'd have done the same thing. That's one one thing this scene underscores for us. Sin happens in our life because we choose it to happen. We do. Yes, Mark doesn't mention the fasting, but but, Matthew, of course Matthew and Luke do. And this is significant because Mark would have us know that these 40 days here in the wilderness were 40 days of Jesus being tempted. I think we tend to link the 40 days to the fasting alone. However, Jesus is being assaulted, as I've already mentioned, by Satan for 40 days. I don't think we want to conclude, and I don't think we want to conclude because Matthew and Luke share three specific temptations with us, that those three specific temptations amounted to the totality of the temptations Jesus faced. Mark's reading would lead us to believe that the temptations were happening throughout the 40 days. And it's likely that these, these, these three that were told by, by Matthew and Luke were probably the three that Satan had stuffed up his sleeve as the f- grand finale. I got them. If none of these other ones work, I got three they are going to work. And let me just say regarding fasting. Brethren, I, I don't believe that Jesus is setting some kind of example for Christians to follow and fasting for 40 days. I, I don't. 40-day fasts were very unique and much attached to climactic moments in redemptive history. And here's very symbolic of Moses both in the 40-day fast and no doubt the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness wandering around because of their sin. I'm persuaded the, the, the Spirit of God specifically leaves out the fasting detail in Mark's account. Not because it wasn't significant. Of course, it certainly was because it's, it's, it's relevant to the very first temptation that, that we're told about. But I see the Spirit's wisdom in leaving that detail out here in Mark because it's not the primary matter at hand. The primary matter is the temptation itself. That's what this event is all about. Yet the Spirit does want us to know about the 40 days. Was Jesus tempted beyond 40 days? Well, no doubt He was throughout His ministry. This was a concentrated season though. Where all hell came against Him. We're told in verse 13, He was in the wilderness 40 days. Days. There is a reason for this. Which I think is the second takeaway. There was a specific time frame given. Specific time frame. The children of Israel were tested and punished for 40 years wandering in the wilderness. I mentioned that. Moses was tested the same amount for 40 days. Elijah likewise. After his great success against the prophets of Baal, he, went on, he was tested by God for 40 days in fasting. Noah, or Noah, Jonah warns Nineveh, God's coming in judgment in 40 days. In Deuteronomy 25, the Lord, the Lord <laughs> instructs Israel this is how you're going to handle disputes. The guilty party, you beat him and you scourge him. 40 times. Now later on, Israel came along and reduced it to 39. That's why Paul says 40, 40 stripes or however he says that, save one. Because, because God said 40 and no more. So they were afraid. They, went, they, they didn't want to go over 40. So they removed it to 39. But th- there, there it is again. The significance of 40. Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days before David took him down. When God flooded the earth, it rained on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. The number 40 appears some 150 times in Scripture. What is the significance of it? Well, it most often represents a season, a time of testing. Israel, after passing through the waters, was tested by God for 40 years. Jesus, after passing through the waters of baptism, was tested for 40 days. But it also represents in years the generation of a person. Forty years. Yes, no question. These 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness here, looking back, have some tie to all the usages of 40 that came before it, particularly as they relate to Moses Israel. I submit to you, brethren, these 40 days here are symbolic moving forward of the generation of grace. That is, they represent the Christian life. However many days God is pleased to give you or give me, the days lived out under the covenant of grace are days of testing, brethren. They are. Moses says, Lord, teach us to number our days. We, we, Brethren, we all have a specific time frame to serve God. A beginning and an end. A giving of life and the very end of that life taken away. And you know what? Those who endure to the end, they are the ones who will be saved. And they are the ones who will be saved because they're sustained by that grace that it caused them to endure. All all of the New Testament bears this out. All of God's children are tried and tested in the fires of divine tribulation. This this testing of Jesus is also a foreshadowing of our testing. In this barren wilderness of this sin-laden world that's full of temptations, ready to take you out, and you know you felt it. You've experienced it. Not to the level of Jesus, but you've experienced it. God tests his people. He does. Not one, not even his son, was exempt from it. Every single Christian must face God testing their faith. And, brethren, the reality is, as Christians, we may or may not pass the test. Um, Maybe you don't like that statement. Our brother Chris mentioned in his message, seasons of sin, they ought to be very dreadful to you. Because guess what? There's no guarantee of you coming out of that season. We've seen it here, haven't we? We've seen hell claim some who claim to be Christians. We read it in the Lord's Supper. If you continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel, but stable and steadfast, if you continue, the arena of God's testing is going to prove it out. It's going to prove it out. I'm not denying the perseverance of the saints. I I 100% believe that's what Scripture teaches. The thing is, you know what? You and I don't know the saint is a persevering one until they actually persevere, right? To the end. Our 40 days, brethren, are right now. 40 days. However many He gives us. The lingering question is, are are you gonna hold up under the pressure and temptations of your 40 days or not? Well, how did how did Jesus do it? How did he do it? How did he hold up? It wasn't by feelings, it wasn't by pulling rank, I'm I'm God after all. It wasn't by carnal means. Paul tells us, Paul does tell us, or not, Paul. Got so he used to talking about Paul. Mark tells us he, he right here, angels ministered to him. I'm sure that's true of us too, brethren. We just we just don't, we're not aware of such help. But but Matthew and Luke do, do tell us how. God's word. Three temptations. They, they, they both record the three temptations that the devil brings to Jesus' doorstep, and all three are met with scripture. That is so instructive for us. First one, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of God's mouth. Every word. Satan comes with another one. Boom! You shall not put the Lord your, Lord your God to the test. He comes with another one. Boom! You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Jesus had a verse of Scripture for every temptation that the devil brings to Him. Do you? Brethren, and this is the third takeaway. Brethren, we got to be equipped with God's word. It needs to be written on the tablets of our heart. We should seek to grab... Listen, well, I don't know what temptations. You know, God, we're tempted in different ways. Devil knows our weaknesses. You know your weaknesses. You know, you know what, you know the temptations that you most struggle with. Brethren, equip yourself with God's Word to combat those specific temptations. Listen, Jesus had to do it. You think we're going to get by with less? That's how He combated the devil. That's how He came out of this thing victorious. The psalmist says, I've I've hid Thy Word in my heart that I might not sin against You. There was something hidden there. Jesus had God's Word hidden. He wasn't out there in the wilderness pulling out His... His legacy, MacArthur's legacy, trying to find the verses, they came right out of his heart. He knew them. That's how he defeated this foe. And like I said, if Jesus had to lean on that, what about us? What are we going to lean on? Something other? Brother, we're always being tested in our 40 days here. But sometimes we feel that reality of testing more than others, right? And so often i found it it comes, it comes right on the backside of, of, of ease and great blessing and spiritual blessing in your life. You know why? Because good times don't prove us. They don't. Praise God for good times. Praise God when there's no warfare. Praise God when it is easy. But you know what? The ease doesn't prove us. It doesn't prove anyone. God sends fire to prove us. And He's going to faithfully put us back and back and back in it to prove us all the way to the end. Jesus testing, same way. He, was going, he went from the great blessing of baptism right into the fire of this, this, these temptations of the devil. And we're never more vulnerable than and at that time it seems. And we're coming right out of great victory and triumph and. I found that to be the case in my life anyway. Experiencing great spiritual blessings, enjoying that, thankful for it, full of joy as we heard in the first hour. Boom! Met with sudden great challenges. Whoa! I think it was Adrian Rogers that said, be prepared. Be prepared. For when God opens the windows of heaven to bless you, the devil opens up the gates of hell to blast you. That's what I've found in my life. So brethren, where's God's Word in your life? Jesus took it with Him into that arena. Do you have the Word of God with you to take it into the arena of your daily living to combat the temptations you face? Do you? Or is it something just, eh, it it becomes a secondary thing? It's in the back burner. And when I get to it, brethren, that's that's flirting with disaster. It's flirting with danger. You need that word to filter your heart. Because that heart can stray, it can wander, it can, just like we heard in the first hour, it can drive you into a season where you're nothing but a human wasteland. That's what David was there, just a human wasteland. But repentance turned it away. The Word of God came to life in him. Brethren, that's, Lord, have, a, have, brethren have a near and dear relationship with God's Word. That's, that's a great takeaway from this. We don't have any other strength. We don't have any other resource than that against the devil. May God help us. Father, thank you that we have a Savior that went before us and succeeded, Lord. He was our temptation bearer, and he, and he went through the temptations faithfully and successfully. Lord, thank you. Thank you we have such a Savior, Lord. Just knowing what He went through, Lord, it, it encourages us, Lord, that we can do it too. Lord, you, you, you did go and you did give us the helper, Lord. You've given us a helper to help us in temptation. So Lord, please, I pray, let that Word be a reality to us. Let that Word be knit into our hearts. Lord, I pray the brethren would would treasure the Word of God and avail themselves to it and hide it in their hearts, Lord. Lord, please help us in this battle against the devil. That we would come out the victor, trusting in our Savior who has paved the way before us. We ask these things in His name. Amen.